Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're coming back to a topic that's very important and increasingly important now, particularly for Eastern and Northern Africa, which is the One Belt, One Road, or the Chinese Silk Road, or there's a number of different names for it. But really, it's China's global grand trading strategy. And now we're coming back to it in part because there's been a lot of developments in the three or four months that we had, since we last talked about it. Uh, in Djibouti, there is now construction of a new naval installation for the Chinese. The one, the uh, standard gauge railway is being built in, in Kenya. We're seeing uh, massive investments in Egypt now coming online, all part of this one belt, one road. And what's interesting is that it fits into a much broader foreign policy agenda, and that is very poorly understood by a lot of people in Africa and around the world and so I think it's really important for us to kind of step back and understand what are the Chinese doing? What is the architecture of Chinese foreign policy? Yes, and it's it's really important to understand that because it is such a massive scheme and it, it does sometimes seem completely unprecedented. But, um, you know, kind of it is it is based in earlier approaches of Chinese statecraft. Um, and also, it's important to to keep an eye on it because it involves so many countries. So, you know, as as you mentioned, some some of these developments have started in Africa. We've also seen developments starting in Southeast Asia, and some being more controversial than others. So, you know, kind of it, it has a lot of potential, but it also has a lot of potential for conflict. Yes, it does. And since it is so poorly understood, we thought it would be a good idea to actually speak with somebody who knows a little bit about this. So we're happy to have back on the program Dr. Matt Furchin, who's an associate professor of international relations at the very prestigious Tsinghua University in Beijing. He's also a resident scholar at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. Matt, welcome back to the program. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me back. And for those of you who may not have heard our earlier show with Matt, Matt is a specialist in kind of China's agenda in the global south, particularly in South America and Africa. And we're going to start again, you know, we talked to you earlier about What's called, is, you know, shorthand is Obor, which people may hear. That's one belt, one road. Uh, it's a rather unusual name, but I think it's a direct translation from Chinese. But this is their grand trading strategy. They're spending hundreds of billions of dollars, it seems like, all around the world. This is a trading route that kind of goes all the way down the coast of, you know, through the South China Sea, down around the tip of India, across the Indian Ocean, up through the, the Sinai Canal, you know, through the Sinai, then into Central Asia and back around to China. That's just the kind of, you can picture that map. And so, you know, you wrote an article recently in Foreign Affairs where you kind of make the contention, Matt, that Obor may seem new for a lot of people, but in fact, as Kobus alluded to, it's actually part of something that you described as, or maybe Xi Jinping and the Chinese described as, the peaceful development strategy. So I think a good starting point for our discussion today is to kind of lay down the, the, the groundwork of what is the peaceful development strategy, and then we can kind of get into the specifics of how it affects Africa with One Belt, One Road. Great. Well, yeah, I think um, this connection of sort of linking the two and not seeing this One Belt, One Road or New Silk Road strategy is sort of completely new is, is worthwhile. So it, my contention is that the um, strategy is really part of a relatively long-term grand strategy, which China first labeled Peaceful Rise um, and has since 2011 officially been called Peaceful development. And it basically implies that China's own economic development at home 
requires a peaceful both domestic and international environment. And so that China will engage in trade and investment and commerce generally with countries both near and far. And that will be good for China and it will be good for others. Um, and so therefore, this will this will um, feed into development for China uh, and for the countries which it engages in these commercial relations with. And the outcome at the international level will be peace. Um, and Matt, do the Chinese and the West mean different things when they when they use the word development? Is there a shared meaning of for development um, across the world, or, or is there a specific kind of Chinese, you know, kind of understanding of that concept? I think that is the exactly correct question, and it's not just China and the West, but it's China and anyone besides China. And I think even more importantly other countries who are going through the development process who are not yet wealthy or industrialized or whoever you want to think about it. But this is something, this is one of the most fascinating elements of China and its peaceful development policy, and certainly under Xi Jinping, is that China is proposing that it has a concept and a contribution to development, and it understands, uh, the gov government of China understands development in a certain way. And I actually think this is a question that's not been asked enough, is what does development mean um, for China and as a discussion within China, because that's changed inside of China, but for anyone else along this One Belt, One Road program, or basically anyone who's involved in sort of engaging with China in this strategy or any kind of commerce, is, is their understanding of what their development needs are, is it the same as China's? And very, very, very few are asking this question. So why do you think they're avoiding that question? Is that because the development business, and I refer to it as a business in the West, is is a multi-billion dollar business. So any challenge to that kind of ideology uh, may be threatening to them. Uh, what is the reason that you think that the discussion isn't coming up more uh, in the international donor community and in the international policy circles as a whole? Partly, I think it's new. I think that China so far has been quite low-key. Um, the idea of peaceful rise, peaceful development has been around for a while, but for the most part, it was focused on China's own domestic needs and development. But increasingly, and I think this is part of the very high public profile of Xi Jinping's promotion of something like One Belt, One Road, is very recent that China is proposing that it has solutions to other countries' development needs and challenges, including things like infrastructure. So, infrastructure. So, part of it is that it's new. I think many countries in the global South and in South America, Latin America, and Africa, and some other places, they also don't have any public desire to confront China on this. There may be lots of interesting discussions in private, um, but publicly, it doesn't seem, at least for now, in anyone's interest to challenge China on what that might mean. Um, and you mentioned um, President Xi Jinping. Um, you know, the, one of the very interesting aspects for me about, about One Belt, One Road is the, this kind of power of his personality and the idea that this is a kind of a, you know, in part a kind of a personal vision of his. And to which extent is that being overblown in, in Western coverage of it? To which extent did he bring a kind of a, a specific spin to this to this idea? I think that it is, in part, in terms of the framing and the publicity um, and the promotion of it, I think a lot of it really is about Xi Jinping trying to both put 
his own uh, mark on Chinese foreign policy. I think it goes along with his trying to provide a personal kind of leadership, both for domestic and international and foreign policy for China. Um, but it's also a relabeling of something that already existed, like I said, both with the peaceful development strategy, but also many of the infrastructure projects um, and many other sort of relationships, trade and investment kinds of strategies that China was already engaging in have simply been relabeled under the heading um, of One Belt, One Road. It's hard to find a project that people either in China or elsewhere wouldn't be willing to have a discussion about like, well, that's probably included in One Belt, One Road. So it's a it's a relabeling of it. And I think it's partly a, a you know promotion of Xi Jinping's leadership. You know, Kobus asked you about the, the definition of the word development. And I'd like to focus a little bit more on the kind of the definition of peaceful. And, you know, this concept of, of the peaceful rise and the peaceful development strategy you pointed out, I think it goes back as far as, as, as Deng Xiaoping, the former paramount leader of China in the 90s, uh, who kind of talked about a, a quiet rise, don't kind of cause conflict and engage the West in confrontation. Hu Jintao, the late, uh, or no, he's not late, he, the, the former, prime, former president, uh, also kind of did the harmonious kind of uh, ideology as well, get along with everybody. Xi Jinping has changed that tone. Uh, you know, for me here sitting in Vietnam, it is hard to kind of see China as peaceful right now, particularly with its actions in the South China Sea. Uh, you know, J-21 fighter jets are buzzing up against the United States. There's the militarization of Woody Island. I mean, the Chinese Coast Guard was protecting, you know, Chinese fishermen off the coast of Malaysia and then we have, obviously, you know, China's being incredibly aggressive in the cyber kind of crime and cyber warfare space, whether it's official or unofficial, they're not doing a lot to kind of crack down on it. All of this kind of combined with a perception in, in a lot of Africa that China is fueling corruption, China is, you know, sending arms to places like South Sudan, to Robert Mugabe, and all of a sudden the word peaceful starts to come into question. And so I'd like to get a little bit of a sense from you about how the Chinese see the word peaceful uh, as part of that foreign policy kind of ideology. Um, well, I, let me just first say that I think that the two questions you've asked about like what is meant by the sort of development side of things and what is meant by the peace side of things, those are exactly the right questions um, that we need to be talking about, that everyone needs to be talking about as China engages on these. So. So I think, first of all, it's just worth saying that, that those definitions really matter. Um, there are two issues that I think you, you bring up here that are worth talking a little bit about. The one is sort of this idea of how the concept of peace is understood domestically here or within China. I would actually go back to thinking about Deng Xiaoping and a domestic discussion uh, and framework that's been around for a long time, which is the connection between development and stability. And that has taken on a, a, a sort of religious tone in China, that the two go together, that there must be development for stability and stability is necessary for development. And Deng himself promoted this idea um, increasingly. And in fact, there are some Chinese scholars who are saying that the connection between peace uh, and development and stability here domestically is what will be the framework for how China engages internationally, including in Africa, on, on development and peace. So there's this interesting connection between what is meant by stability domestically and maybe peace internationally. Now, the second point that you bring up is 
it certainly seems to many, um, both in the region and certainly for those, in, I think, in the United States, who would think, well, this is just um, a sort of rhetoric um, or cover for China's other ambitions. And this is certainly some uh, a concern. And they, there's a lot of tension between the sort of win-win ideas of development that is going to be good for everyone and the clear territorial uh, as well as maritime issues, especially in the South China Sea. And this is something that I think uh, the foreign policy of China is attempting to grapple with and kind of compensate for these um, these military or territorial territorial um, challenges in the region. Um, you know, linking to that, in your um, article for foreign affairs recently, um, you wrote that um, that new in, new infrastructure financing initiatives will be challenging at best and prone to conflict at worst. Now, these are these being new infrastructure financing initiatives that will develop, you know, along the the one belt one road route. Um, I wonder if you could unpack a little bit what you meant by that and why why you know kind of will they be challenging or even violent. Well, let me say again about the connection between the domestic and the international here. I think a lot of the way that the infrastructure projects are being packaged through One Belt, One Road, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and others, a lot of the rhetoric around it is that infrastructure development has been a key component of China's own domestic development and that it has provided uh, an important engine of growth domestically. So it's a positive story. But for anyone who's looked at this, um, it's been often a confrontational one. You know, you build the Three Gorges Dam and you have to move hundreds of thousands of people out of their homes. And sometimes that doesn't go smoothly. There's uh, environmental challenges on and on. So when we look at this in areas outside of China's own territory, some of these own issues are being reproduced. And I think of examples like the Mitsone Dam in Myanmar, where you already have a sort of armed conflict and a Chinese company, state-owned company, comes in to build an infrastructure project. Yes, maybe the energy could be useful um, for development purposes, but there's also an ongoing conflict, which indeed could be and was seemingly exacerbated by the, the infrastructure project. So a lot of these um, concerns, now it's not going to be the case everywhere or even most situations. But if we look at Pakistan, if we look at Afghanistan, if we look at a number of countries in Africa and elsewhere, um, these are real concerns. It's not just going to be as easy as you build the dam or the railway or the highway and everybody's happy. Yeah, it's interesting when we talk about kind of the Chinese, the, the obstacles that they're facing in their so-called developmentalist foreign policy, uh, you know, because I really look at foreign policy as the expression of a country's kind of ideals, not necessarily, or actually, you know, it's it's a, always a balance between interest and ideals, but in many ways, the, the kind of rhetoric is an expression of their ideals. So for the United States, we always talk about kind of bringing democracy and freedom to the rest of the world. You know, that was something that was very big under George W. Bush, and it's been a cornerstone, uh, you know, of our foreign policy going back, you know, at least 50 to 60 years throughout the whole Cold War. But at the same time, we have this kind of embedded hypocrisy because we have to do business with the Saudis. We have to do business with Burkina Faso. We called Ethiopia a democracy. And that's where the interests kind of overwhelm the ideals. And I feel in some ways the Chinese are mirroring this as well. They have this ideal that they built their own economy through 
uh, this this infrastructure-led development. It's done them extraordinarily well over the past 30 years, where they rose from one of the poorest countries in the world to the second largest economy. And now they're trying to export that and kind of show other countries in that. But at the same time, they run into their own types of hypocrisy, the fueling of corruption, the loan packages that often tend to benefit more of the Chinese banks and the Chinese side than they do the African side, the lack of skills transfer, all the things that made China successful are not being exported, but the rhetoric is still there and the idealism on the part of the Chinese is still there, but ultimately leads into a very similar hypocrisy that we see from US foreign policy. I'd be interested to kind of get your take on that balance between the interest and the ideals, particularly as China engages the global South in places like Africa and South America. Yeah, it's a great question, and I've been thinking about this comparison with U.S. experience um, and China today as well. And I guess two things along these lines. One of them is that the United States certainly had its own experiences with development promotion. Um, This happened at various times, but we can think in particular about the 1960s as the development decade. Um, and the Kennedy administration and the Alliance for Progress, especially in Latin America. And in a lot of ways, this came off as sort of people in the United States thinking that they had a solution to the development challenges. In a lot of ways, it was a sort of one-size-fits-all solution um, that a number of advisors to Kennedy came in with, And they didn't go so well. And it came off as sort of arrogant and intrusive. And by the end of the 1960s, there was a lot of unhappiness um, about that. Uh, One of the worries I have is that China may replicate some of this. Um, And it wouldn't necessarily be out of ill will. It's just that there are a variety of imperatives pushing China to promote these policies. Some of it has to do with China's own changing domestic economy. And some of it has to do... Um, with the foreign policy goals of Xi Jinping himself. But there needs to be, I think, more introspection and thinking about what did and didn't go well within the country, within China. And if, if, when you start promoting this abroad, I would think it re- would require more than less humility. Um, the United States didn't always do so well at that. And I worry a little that China may replicate some of this arrogance, even though it says that what it's doing will be win-win. In you know, kind of to take us back to a very basic question in in relation to one belt, one road. Um, to which extent do you feel that it's going to be primarily have the effect of enlarging Chinese Chinese political influence, and to which extent is it simply going to enlarge Chinese commercial influence? Um, you know, kind of like which which do you think will be the more the more powerful force there? Is it simply the the economic kind of engine kind of heating up, or you know, um, or will it actually will there actually be tangible like? Uh, a center positioning Beijing as as a political center increasingly. So if that's you know another one of these key questions, and it's just too soon to know. I guess my feeling is that what we're going to see is a lot of the economic sort of imperatives, but also very powerful institutions, state-owned enterprises, um, state policy banks, um, pushing a lot of the agenda, especially with One Belt One Road. Less, I think, with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank because it's multilateral. But I think what we're going to see is a lot of the um, the commercial institutions promoting the actual um, plans and investment projects. Um, but a lot of the, the the question of like how far China will get in terms of the political influence will rest on the success of the those economic projects. 
So, for example, I look a lot at China-Venezuela. Um, I think China had grand hopes to uh, to create in Venezuela a major oil partner and also a political, geopolitical partner in the region. Those two things have both failed, I think, in large part, and they failed together. So I think that in, a, in large part, this will sort of depend on like how viable are the actual economic projects. Well, that will go a long way towards determining how well the political influence or how far the political influence progresses. Well, let's close our discussion today on this question of political influence. And, and I'm going to ask you what, what's a serious question. And I know that people can smirk whenever we bring up the, the topic of Donald Trump. But Donald Trump now is you know, a very serious political figure in the United States. One of his main talking points has been that you know, China is winning. China is beating America. China is beating the rest of the world. And what I find so interesting is that, you know, Kobus and I, we spend a lot of time on African social media we have in our own discussion forums. And I'm now starting to actually see that rhetoric kind of, you know, filter into the discourse. Uh, you know, there's talk, you know, on a lot of the pages that we follow on, on some of the portals in, in Africa that, you know what? China is winning. And it's kind of, you know, people may not even be attributing it back to Donald Trump, but it's just becoming part of the discussion and the, and the perception. You know, Donald Trump's public relations are far superior than that of China's. <laughs> There's no dispute there. And so I guess my question is, you know, Americans now increasingly believe that China is trying to change the rules of the international economic order in its favor. And that's what happens when emerging powers challenge the kind of status quo power. People like Ian Bremmer, who is the very well-known president of the Eurasia Group, he points out that, you know, One Belt, One Road, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank are still tiny compared to the rest of the international order. And so the influence is like a pebble being dropped into a giant lake. I mean, the ripples are very close to the pebble, but at the end of the day, it's imperceptible to the, to the rest of that body of water. Where do you come down in terms of how what all of this development strategy and China's engagement with Africa and South America and the rest of the world, is it trying to change the rules of the international economic order and really challenge the status quo institutions? Or is it just trying to pursue its own narrow interests? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think it's both trying to play within the already established order and have a greater influence within it. So within institutions like the IMF and the World Bank and others, it's clearly going out and establishing sort of unilateral uh, initiatives like One Belt, One Road, and then multilateral institutions like Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which it will have a lot of influence over. So it's doing a little bit of all of these things. I guess, though, when it comes back to this question of, like, is China winning, my concern is that too little analysis has gone into understanding both the coherence of the so-called strategy, I think it's not as coherent as a lot of people would claim, and then also looking at what the outcomes may be. And we don't have to look any further than the U.S. And countries, even with a lot of power and influence, make mistakes. And that can happen because of poor planning. It can happen for a multitude of reasons. And I think it's way, way too early to say um, that China either has a coherent strategy or that that strategy is being influential. And I would be just as or more concerned um, that China or that, that America or anyone else be looking out for the ways in which sort of there are unintended consequences or mistakes that are made. Kobus, listening to everything that we've heard today from Matt, 
it doesn't, unfortunately, and I'm sorry to say this, Matt, but you're not helping the situation in terms of clearing <laughs> it up because this is such a complicated situation. As you pointed out, China is both, you know, a, a, a status quo actor, but also a rebellious actor trying to change things and trying to play, you know, change the rules. But at the same time, it's benefited enormously from the international order kind of implemented by the West and the United States. Kobus, I'm curious to kind of get your take, you know, from your vantage point in South Africa, listening to everything that Matt's kind of said, how you think it'll be interpreted by policymakers on the continent and, and in terms of, you know, understanding China's strategy and its development strategy in Africa. You know, I think in, in, this, in this sense, policymakers in Africa probably feel quite insulated from China much more than their counterparts would in Southeast Asia. Um, obviously, in, in Southeast Asia, you know, these countries have to deal with with the, the, the physical presence of China very close to them and the, the kind of the, what that brings in terms of, of its pure military power. Um, I think in Africa, there's, there is a lot of concern kind of voiced about um, being dominated by China, but most of the time that is kind of couched in terms of economic domination. And we frequently see, we see a kind of a crude version of that in the neocolonialism debate that never seems to die. This idea that, that Africa is going to be colonized by China. Um, you know, so I think, I think policymakers tend to be, to look at all of this mostly at the moment, mostly as, um, as, as a set of opportunities. And especially, you know, kind of, this is especially true of East Africa, of course, you know, kind of, which is much more directly going to be affected. But you know, kind of, Southern Africa could be connected to that through Mozambique, um, and and you know, so on. So I think I think there is excitement about it. Um, and but what I think, where I think it's the the political complications are really going to come in a lot more is in the next decade or two when those connections actually start being made, and we see the real flows of people and Chinese-made goods. Um, you know, kind of like moving back and forth. You know, um, once those are he heating up, then, you know, it's, it's going to change everything. You know, I've been studying China and Chinese language for going on 30 years now. And, and this conversation tonight kind of highlights everything that I love about the topic, because no one can pretend to ever understand China. Uh, Matt, you've been there long enough. You know this. And if you ever hear anybody who says, I'm a China expert, and I've, I've kind of figured this thing out, you know immediately that they're either drunk, they're lying, they're immature, uh, because nobody with any amount of knowledge can kind of pretend that they, they figured this out. And I think this is what makes this discussion, particularly in an African context, so fascinating, because it, they're at one time an aggressor to the international order, another time a protector of the international order. Uh, you know, they're at one time trying to change the rules, but another time trying to maintain the rules. They're one time trying to be kind of win-win development, but at other times, you know, unilateral. Uh, you know, it's both legal and illegal on some of the things that they do. Uh, and, and that's what, again, it makes it impossible when you get onto these arguments on social media with people and they say China is this. And you know you can turn around and say, well, no, China's that, 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 that. And it's, you know, and the, all are true. And, and that's what I think is so fascinating. So I invite all of our listeners to take a look at what Matt has written on over on Foreign Affairs. It's, a, it's one of their free articles. Uh, they do have a, a paywall and a subscription. But China Keeps the Peace, How Peaceful Development Helps and Hinders China. 
Uh, Matt, it's an excellent kind of uh, you know, analysis on this. It's a little confusing, especially for newbies to it, but I think people should just take the first step in diving into kind of China studies and af- you know, <laughs> after a few years, you'll try to, to figure it out. Uh, Matt, one of the things we like to do at the end of every show, of course, is thank you for taking the time to join us and also uh, invite people to follow what you're reading and writing these days. Where's the best place that they can stay in touch with you? Uh, my Carnegie website. If you just uh, put in Matt Furchin and Carnegie, you'll find all pretty much everything I've got. That's F-E-R-C-H-E-N. And uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Right, thank you. And Kobus and I will be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.